Uh, so we are closing out First Thessalonians today, and, and it's really been a wonderful book. We, you know, we began, uh, we know that God has chose you, so we started with election, and then we ended with eschatology the last couple weeks. So really, two of the most uncontroversial things uh, that Christians like to discuss. Uh, that's obviously a lie. Those are probably the two things we'd love to debate the most uh, and wrestle with the truth of Scripture through. And so uh, coming on the heels of uh, Bill uh, dealing with the idea of the resurrection and then Steve talking about the day of the Lord, Paul's going to kind of close this letter out uh, somewhat rapidly. Uh, it may feel a little choppy, uh, but the idea is, is he's trying to summarize a few key points that he's actually probably talked about a little bit throughout his letter uh, in terms of how do we now live? How should this community of saints, this church, function in light of Christ's imminent return? In light of the certainty that we know of the resurrection, the certainty of the coming day of the Lord, okay, what do we do now? And so that's how we're going to close out First uh, Thessalonians. So I'm going to read from chapter 5, uh, and then we'll just go back and make a few comments and work through this. Uh, beginning in verse 12, we read, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and so in verse 12, we see Paul transitioning. He's now asking this church, brothers and brothers and sisters, so this is kind of like when we say guys, it's an all-inclusive term, to respect those and to esteem a certain group. So in this verse, we see a what, we see a who, and we see a why. And so the what is to respect, to esteem, and the who he defines according to their function. This group of who is those who labor among you those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. And so what this is referring to primarily is what we call elders in the church. And so if you've been coming to Revolve for a while, we've uh, done quite a few sermon series on the church. We just did the church in our doctrine class back in the spring. And so what we see in the New Testament in terms of church leadership is this group called elders, which is the Greek uh, presbyteros. Uh, but we also see that there's words that are used interchangeably. There's episkopos, which we translate as overseer or bishop. And these are not two separate offices or titles. They are one and the same, just used to kind of cover different facets of this one position. The term that we actually use the most recent or most common in our evangelical circles, pastor, is actually not used in the New Testament in terms of uh, title or office. It's actually used in terms of function. So the idea is that this group of elders, this group of overseers is to pastor, is to shepherd the church, 
that is entrusted to them. So pastoring touches on their function. Uh, and so I also said primarily because of the fact that in this first century church, we had Paul, we had his apostolic team of Timothys and Titus's who would then go to these churches and serve these churches. And Paul is obviously including them as well, but primarily he's speaking with this offices or this office of elder pastor. And so uh, we see why they are supposed to respect and esteem them based upon the functions that he gives them. He says that they are to labor among them. And so this concept of maybe that is more prevalent in megachurches where you kind of have this senior pastor or this board of elders that's this weird behind-the-scene conglomerate making decisions from on high is totally antithetical to the idea of leadership in the Bible. That the elders and pastors are to be among brushing elbows and laboring alongside for the benefit of the church of God. And I can tell you, I confess myself and my bride, if she was here, she had to work today, would agree with me that this is an area where I know I need to improve upon. Laboring among you, brushing elbows with you. And so I repent of that before you. And I know with the elders, we meet weekly and probably once a quarter, these guys will agree with me, we all feel like utter failures. And we feel guilty to know that how far short we fall of this office because we respect it so highly. And we understand that it is one of servant leadership meant to benefit you so that you can do the work of the ministry and become what you're supposed to be in Christ Jesus, reflecting his image. And so also on the flip side of that, where maybe we feel like failures, but also in terms of the congregation's responsibility to your elders, there's nothing wrong with respecting outside teachers and Christian leaders. I have tons that I learned from. I love Don Carson and Tom Schreiner and Steve Wellam and these guys whose books I have set up high on my shelves so that way if anyone comes in, they'll marvel at my bookshelf like everybody does, right? You always look for the bookshelf when you go to visit somebody's home first? No? Is that just me? All right. You look for the bookshelf. It's just me. Oh. Well, Steve is a really nice one that he shows off. So maybe it's me and Steve. But the idea is that those are great tools and resources for the church. We have a myriad, way too much of abundance of resources uh, to where the point where we're probably crossing the line in the West in terms of the, the amount, of, uh, in terms of sinfulness, in terms of the amount of money that we just throw in resources. But the idea is that we are to respect and esteem those who are actually going to give an account of you before God, which is what we will have to do as the team of elders. How we shepherd you, how we disciple you, how we lead you, we're going to have to answer before God Almighty. The one who, like we were talking about earlier, singing, is he worthy? That no one dared approach his throne. We have to give an answer to him. Um. And Paul touched on this theme earlier in the sense of how he reflected what Christian leaders were supposed to do. In chapter 2, he wrote, we were gentle among you. Paul speaking of him and his elder team, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, they were ready to share with them the teachings of scripture, but in addition to that, they shared their very selves which is if you're aspiring to any type of Christian leadership, that's the mindset you need to have, is sharing your very self with the people of God. Additionally, we see that they are over them in the Lord. And so this is important to understand is that the elder's authority is in the Lord, that it is an authority that is derivative, that is derived from the lordship of Christ. 
And it is only existent insofar as we are conforming what we're teaching, what we're doing, how we're behaving, how we're obeying in accordance with the scriptures and what is revealed of the Lord's standards. And it is the authority that is in harmony and some uh, kind of wonderful balance with the congregation. That if you go to Matthew 18 and Jesus is teaching on this concept of church discipline, he says that you're initially to go to your brother And if he will not repent of his sin, you bring two or three witnesses to corroborate the story, calling this brother to repentance. If he still will not repent, it doesn't say go to the elders. Jesus says, take it before the assembly. Take it before the church. And so in a sense, the church, we together corporately have a level of authority that balances out the authority of the elders, which comes from the chief shepherd, as we saw in 1 Peter 5 when we did that sermon series. And so he is the chief shepherd and that the elders function with a derivative authority as under shepherds. And again, we will give an account to God in how we lead. Lastly, it says admonish. That's a fun word. I'm glad I picked this week to preach. So the idea is admonishing. It is warning. It is rebuking harshly. As Steve touched on last week with the day of the Lord, Paul made this part of his gospel message. And it's not common today that we want to talk of impending judgment as part of the message that we give to the people. We want to greatly emphasize God's love and don't talk about the bad things. But the irony of that is the greatest display of love that God could ever show is what? The cross. But what is also the greatest display of judgment? It's the cross. And so God, in this beautiful picture, has shown us both aspects that we are to preach. Because there is an impending judgment coming. There is a day of wrath coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It is certain. But we have the work of Christ. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins in him. And so this idea of admonishment is meant to be part of how we function as the church and as elders to you. If you're doing something that's not in accord with the scriptures, it would not be loving on our part to let you continue in that. The New Testament is full of warning passages, especially the book of Hebrews, warning you of apostatizing from the faith, of leaving the faith, of living a life that is a lie to yourself because if you say you have faith but don't have works, what does James say? Your faith is dead. It's useless. It's not a real faith. Saving faith will produce works and actions that are in accord with godliness. He finishes the verse out, be at peace among yourselves. And it makes sense to be at peace among yourselves as a wonderful transition before the next verse because we ended with admonishing as the work that elders are supposed to do. Well, who likes to be admonished? Oh man, I thought I'd get more hands than that. No one? We don't like to be admonished. What's our natural instinct? We want to get defensive. We want to get aggressive. We want to leave. We want to fight back. But Paul is saying, be at peace. Understand that the elders love you and want to serve you and pray for you. They're not doing this because they want to be jerks or keep our power in our little bubble, not let anybody else in. Continuing on, verse 14, we see, and we urge you. So he moves from asking the church to respect and esteem the elders, but now he's urging them, brothers, admonish the idle, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Now, this is uh, implied. We don't see the words one another here, but essentially this is that concept. One another. This is now the church. He's urging the church one to another, the people sitting with you at the tables and across from you at the tables and at different tables. One another, we are to do these things. We admonish the idol. There's that fun word again, admonish. And so being blunt, laziness is a sin. And laziness, of course, is distinct from rest in that rest is implying a completion of work, a doing of work that you are now resting from. But laziness is the work never began. In Proverbs, we see in chapter 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. Just picture yourself around that wonderful campfire. And no matter what seat you choose, God in his wonderful sovereignty makes sure that smoke will hit you right in the face. Smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him. His desire for laziness ends up destroying him, for his hands refuse to labor. Work is a major theme in the scriptures. You find it right at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God completes making male and female in his image, and what does he tell them to do? They have a responsibility now. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with image bearers, and have dominion. That sounds a little bit like work. Genesis chapter 2, Adam is placed in the garden and he has a responsibility to work it and to keep it. He is to protect this garden. He is to maintain this garden. Work is very, very biblical. And so laziness would be a sin. It is antithetical to how God has designed us as image bearers. And it's not until Genesis 3 with the curse of God because of the fall that our work now becomes wearisome and full of toil. Paul hit on this theme in chapter 4. He said, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The idea of how we work is actually a witness of the church, of God's nature, of his character, and ultimately also of the gospel. Moving on, we're to encourage the faint-hearted, Now, whether this is from persecution, as we saw in chapter 3, or from worrying about those who had died and had missed the resurrection in chapter 4, it is our responsibility as the church to encourage one another, to encourage the faint-hearted. And in this way, we reflect the care and compassion of Christ, who in Matthew 12, we see, quoting from Isaiah 42, and, and one of the famous servant songs that are in Isaiah, that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. He will not extinguish. Guess what? He'll actually fan it into flame with the power of his spirit. And so just to point out, as the action step or um, the discussion questions we have at the end, this is one of the action steps that maybe you could start chewing on in terms of who can you encourage this week. Help the weak. It may refer to weak from suffering with persecution. It could refer to the idea that they're uh, weak from anxiety over the coming day of the Lord. Or it could be Paul referring to, uh, as he does in other uh, passages like Romans 14, of the weak conscience or the weak brother. The idea is still the same. The principle is still the same in the sense that we are to be disciple makers of one another, encouraging each other, helping the weak so that they grow up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. 
Paul in Galatians says, bear one, another bur- one another's burdens so that way you fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is a law of love. And love pursues what is best for the beloved. And we are to be each other's beloved as we are the church of Christ gathered here locally. We, as a family of God, brothers and sisters, and we're to be patient with all. And so we're patient because, one, we're not omnipotent. We don't have an endless supply of energy to be able to do these things well, admonishing, encouraging, helping. We get exhausted. And so we need to make sure that we're growing in the fruit of the Spirit, with it, which is patience. But also we need to have discernment. The last thing you want to do is admonish the faint-hearted, admonishing the weak. We don't want to do those types of things. Uh, and lastly, I want to touch on just kind of wrapping up those two versus the idea that I hit on before in terms of authority. And as I was kind of chewing on this, and we've done, like I said, we've done church series, we've done the doctrine class on church, is understanding the communal aspect that is so lacking in our individualistic society, and especially in terms of authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. We're Americans. Don't tread on me. Leave me alone. I'll do what I want, right? I should have autonomy over myself and my body. And to where we can nuance that and obviously make that argument, you are responsible to repent and believe the gospel. I can't do that for you. Like I said, there is an authority that the elders have derived from the Lord, and there is an authority that we have. The one another's imply an authority. And the reason I'm harping on this so much is it's really easy to be okay with the authority one another has for each other when it's love one another, encourage one another, bless one another, serve one another. Those are okay. I get that. Yeah, serve me, love me. But if you're admonishing me, well, we need to reconcile and deal with the fact that you have authority to admonish me. Now, maybe you're wrong, and we're going to bring that to the ultimate authority of the scriptures, and we're going to wrestle through that, but we do that together. I don't leave and say, hey, I'm going to the church down the street where they won't admonish me. That's not how the New Testament is supposed to function. And so, like I said, I harp on that authority because we have authority over each other as the church of Christ. We may not like that fact, but that's what the one and others are, implicit in that. Continuing on, we see verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We're a people that is meant to pursue justice. God is a just God. But we have to remember that the ends never justify the means in pursuing justice. That as a people that have been saved by grace, we are not to pursue revenge in any sense. Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we saw last week when that day ultimately will come, the day of the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, as I was studying for this, uh, this week, I read this quote in, um, I have, my wife got me the Ancient Faith uh, Study Bible, which is really cool. It's, it's dealing with church fathers from like uh, post-apostolic uh, time to like 500 A.D., um, and they're, it's kind of, it's fun to read because they have a different perspective on things. You know, they're in a different culture and time, and sometimes that can expose uh, blind spots that you have in your own uh, culture. Sorry, that's 
nerding out right there. But I, I like the way this, this uh, old uh, church father called Abba Pomen, Father Pomen, was addressed this particular verse. He's like, what the heck does this thing mean? And so he said, um, repaying evil for evil is essentially passions can work out. Evil can work out itself in four stages. He said, first in the heart, secondly in the face, thirdly in words, and fourthly, it is essential not to render evil for evil in deeds. If you can purify your heart, passion will not come into your expression. But if it comes into your face, take care not to speak. But if you do speak, cut the conversation short in case you render evil for evil. And I just thought that was a wonderfully simple expression of wisdom and how to make sure we're putting checks and balances on our lives to make sure we're not rendering evil for evil. Understanding ultimately, like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that evil comes initially from the heart. You don't initially murder somebody. It just doesn't naturally, normatively just come right out. But guess what? If hatred festers in your heart and gets to a point where it is left unchecked, it will ultimately lead to that. And we're to do good to one another and to everyone, as he finishes out this verse, which is another Pauline uh, statement elsewhere in Galatians that says we are to do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. And so the New Testament makes the distinction that, yes, it's great to serve those outside the church. It is great to love the poor. It is great to help the needy outside the church. But first and foremost, you take care of your family, right? We would all agree with that, I think. And so the church is the household of God. That we are called to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the brothers and sisters that are sitting here, that are committed to revolve church as a local assembly and family of God before we're pouring resources into serving those outside. If we have needs amongst us, we need to make sure we take care of them. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so rejoice always, Christians are to be a people characterized by joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. In chapter 4, Paul said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. That joy is grounded in biblical hope. It's understanding the, ex the complete certainty of God's promises. And from that understanding, from that grounding, from that foundation, we can have joy in all circumstances because we know the outcome. We're not wavering or scared that ultimately the day of the Lord won't come and God will renew all things. It is grounded in the certainty of our God. Pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean that we pray every second of every day in, this, in some weird uh, meditative, weird state of just kind of vision-like mentality. But the point is that we are making a disciplined, consistent, um, uh, regular pursuit of fellowship with our God in prayer with our triune God, that we pray in the Father, or to the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And really, this is an outworking of our priestly role. When we looked at the church, we saw that, or also in the First Peter series, we saw that we as the church are a kingdom of priests, that we each have a priestly role, and part of that priestly role is coming before God, is pursuing his presence, is interceding for those, interceding for first for our church family, and then also for our community at large. 
is understanding that we live quorum Deo, which is just a fancy Latin word for before the presence of God. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. We are always before him, whether we realize it or not. But we are to grow in our priestly understanding that we are always doing that work where we live, work, learn, and play. Giving thanks. James mentions in chapter 1 that we are to count it all joy when we face various trials. We should give thanks because we know in Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. We thank God for the good times and we thank God for the hard times because ultimately our sovereign God is using them to make us like Christ. And that's the ultimate point. That's the goal of being image bearers of God is to reflect him and his character well. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so don't quench the spirit. Don't put out the spirit. Don't extinguish the spirit. The context of this passage, which seemed to imply that Paul is kind of further explaining, well, what in the, how can we extinguish the sovereign God and his spirit? Well, Paul is kind of giving us an explanation in the following clauses. He says, well, you do that by despising prophecy. And so real quick then, what is prophecy? If perhaps you have the understanding of prophecy that it is always predicting, that it is always foretelling the future, well, in the biblical understanding of prophecy, that is not the case. That is obviously there. It's obviously included. We know in Micah that uh, he is told that the, the Messiah will come and he will be born in Bethlehem. That's telling the future. But more often, the, the usual understanding of biblical prophecy is that these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and a host of others that don't have books of the Bible, are coming to the people of God, and they're acting like God's prosecutors. They're calling them back to covenant faithfulness. They are admonishing them and when they are unfaithful to the covenant that they made with God at Sinai. And so this is the main understanding of prophecy, that it is uh, forthtelling, and it's explaining something you need to know in the moment more so than foretelling. And so there's disagreements in terms of whether prophecy is functioning still today in the church. Some equate it with preaching, what I'm doing now. Uh, I don't think that's the case. That's my personal position. But I do think it's not the normative operation in terms of we have prophets running around. And this is just my opinion. I don't, can't speak for all the elders, though they're wrong if they don't agree with me. But the idea is that prophecy, and especially in the first century of the church, had this foundational role. Because there was a huge shift in terms of redemptive history. When the God the Son takes on human flesh and comes to earth, that's kind of a major point in the history of redemption. And so as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ, this God the Son who becomes flesh, is the cornerstone of the church, but the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And so we don't believe that there's any big A apostles running around anymore, though many will want to claim that title. And so in the similar sense, I would say that you don't have any big P prophets. But we as the church as a whole have a prophetic role through Christ because we are calling people to repent, to come back to covenant faithfulness to their God. And so how do we not despise prophecies? Well, we need to test what's good, and reject what's evil. And so in this context, evil would be a false prophet. Evil would be false teaching. To teach something falsely is a sin. If we're wrong, we can have inadvertent sins. If I'm teaching you something wrong, I repent before God, 
if you expose it to me because I'm teaching you wrongly. So false prophecy would be a sin and we should abstain from that evil. And so this will bring in this theme of authority. What is the ultimate and final authority for weighing prophecy and the teachings that come from the pulpit? It's the scriptures. That uh, Jesus exercises his lordship, the incarnate word exercises his lordship through the revealed word to the church. And so we weigh every teaching against the scriptures. But also abstaining from every form of evil. This is more broadly as well because we are God's temple, as we saw in the church series. And so God will not allow impurity and evil to exist in his presence and his temple. The holiness of God's temple is a major theme. Just go read the book of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, especially when you begin your reading plan at the beginning of the year. But we, we end the book of Exodus where the people of Israel and Moses, they complete the tabernacle. And then God's glory and his presence fill the tabernacle. And what happens is the priests have to leave. They cannot bear to stand in the presence of God. Even Moses himself has to get out of there. And so it begs the question, how can sinful people, how can fallen image bearers ever bear or, or handle coming to the presence of God? And so we get the book of Leviticus. Rolls right in. God gives sacrifices, which ultimately point to the wonderful sacrifice of Christ, who is the final and best day of atonement that uh, sanctifies and atones his people through his work, our great high priest. We saw this theme of holiness in chapter 4. For God has not called you to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, whoever disregards pursuing holiness, understanding that God will not tolerate it in his presence, does not disregard man, not disregarding anyone that's showing you the scriptures or admonishing you, you're disregarding God ultimately, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And I love the flow of these verses because we just finished verse 22 with the command to abstain from all forms of evil. And so really that should be crushing. Because we can all admit, I think if we're honest with ourselves, how quickly we're going to sin. How quickly we're going to miss the mark of God's perfect holy standard. And it can be crushing. Because you were just commanded to abstain from it, and when we leave these doors, we're probably going to go right into it. It's inevitable, this side of eternity. But then how does Paul encourage us? He says, abstain from evil, pursue your sanctification. But guess what? Verse 23, now the God of peace, may he himself sanctify you. That the God of peace, may he be the one that ultimately works in you and through you to pursue your sanctification. And that with your whole person, spirit, soul, body, just the entirety of your being, he will present blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He started the work, 
He brought about your regeneration, which is essentially just a fancy term that means he gives you new spiritual life because you were dead in sin. And so he will not fail because he cannot fail because he is God. And so he who calls you is faithful and he will surely help you abstain from evil and pursue good and he will do it. Closing out, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.